Well, if you have a Bible with you, and, and I hope you do, please turn with me to the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3. And we're continuing our series here through the book of 2 Peter, a letter that was written to encourage the church to both remember the gospel, but also to beware of those who would come and try to distort it. In fact, we've seen that the very act of remembering and living out the gospel back when we started this journey about year and a half ago, protects us from the lies that are out there. We have seen the hope that the gospel gives us, how it is only the power of God that transforms us, and how we've already been rescued, and that we need to remember this. We need to be reminded of this. We saw how we need to live out the life, live out in light of the gospel, we need to do, and that doing so confirms that work of the gospel in our lives. We saw that we need to have confidence in the gospel because it is the very words of God. We can't stand on anything else. The Bible needs to be our standard, not some sort of optional extra that we tack on. We looked at the character of false teachers then, how they deny Christ's rule over their lives, how they exploit people for financial gain and then lie to justify their actions. And then we saw judgment is coming. And if God judged in the past, then he's going to do so again. False teachers are not going to get away with their lies. But we also saw that God is faithful. God is faithful, and he's going to rescue his people. Because if God rescued Noah, if God rescued Lot, if God rescued Israel from Egypt, if God rescued David, if God rescued Jonah, and if God rescued Daniel... Won't he do it again for us? And if you were here last week, Keegan, Keegan actually preached on this theme of looking at the law through the lens of the history of God's redemption, of his rescue. Because God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, the law was given. And they were, because they were rescued, he gave them the Ten Commandments. And then back in May, we looked at the true nature of false teachers how they're driven by pride and sensuality and greed and their consequences, because there are real consequences. How they offer nothing but death and how they lead immature people astray. People who are not built up and living out the gospel. And we asked the question at the time, are we mature? You know, it's maybe not a question we, we tend to ask very often, but are we mature? Are we vulnerable to the lies of false teachers? And this all brings us here to our passage for today, which is concerned with a particular lie. And we're going to ask one of the most important questions that we can ask. It's a question that cuts to the very heart of our understanding of the good news of the gospel. So here's the question. Do you believe Jesus is coming back. And we sang about it a little earlier in the service, but do you really believe he's coming back? And I mean believe it, not the sort of intellectual assent that we have. It's one of the disconnects we have in our modern life where, well, maybe it's even a historical human thing where often we, we think that, you know, we can believe something and not live it out. That we can somehow disconnect our understanding of something from our lives. We can believe it without it changing our lives. 
Because I think most of us would respond when asked the question of, do we believe Jesus is coming back? We'd say, yeah, sure, I believe Jesus is coming back. But do we really believe it? Do our lives reflect that? Are we anticipating? Are you anticipating the coming of Christ? Or do you have doubts? Do you ever wonder if we got it wrong? If this is all it? So if you turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to start reading at verse 1, and we're going to go down to the end of verse 10. This is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as though they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. By the same word, the heavens and earth now existed, now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. As we looked at back when we started this series, this is the second letter that Peter has written to this church or group of churches. And though we don't know for sure, most scholars agree that the most likely case is that this other letter that that is referenced in our passage here is the book of 1 Peter. And Peter is here is writing close to his death, and we saw that back in chapter 1. He may have already been even in prison at this point. And what's happening here is Peter wants to make sure that these people whom he cares deeply about, notice he calls them beloved. You know, you don't call random acquaintances beloved unless you're a Newfoundlander, then you say my love, right? But most people don't do that. I, I remember, he wants them to remember the most important things. And having encouraged them to, rem- to remember, live out, and stand firm on the gospel, having warned them about false teachers, he now wants to address the question of whether or not Jesus is coming back. And at the time of his writing, you know, this was a point of serious soul-searching in the church. Most believers expected Jesus' return with the, in their lifetime, most first-century believers. In fact, the first-century believers used to greet one another by saying, Maranatha, which means, Lord, come quickly. If you just turn with me quickly to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says to the Thessalonians, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed by either spirit, 
or spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember when I was still with you, I told you these things? See, Paul has to write to correct because they're anticipating his coming so much that that some of them people are coming and saying, well, he's already come. And throughout the centuries, the church has found tremendous hope in this promise of the second coming of Christ. And the church at the time of this letter was written was had and was still facing tremendous persecution. Tremendous external persecution. The the persecution was intensifying and soon Peter himself would be killed. And now as the letter of 2 Peter indicates, there's internal problems, internal troubles with the lies that are being taught. And so they longed for the coming of Christ. They expected it. But nothing happened. You know, Jesus didn't return. So there was this, on the one we have this great expectation, but there's, there's no fulfillment. And given this, it's probably not surprising that some began to lose hope, began to doubt, maybe, whether or not Jesus was actually coming back. And the apostles are dying off. By this point, many of them have died. Many of the early believers, the first generation of believers who actually met Jesus or were taught by the apostles are starting to die off. And so these false teachers slip into the cracks and whisper lies. They say, did Jesus really say he was coming back? Or maybe he was mistaken. Maybe it was recorded wrong. Maybe he lied to you. And this is a compelling question, is it not? Because 2,000 years later, we're still waiting. Didn't Jesus say he was coming soon? I don't know about you, but I don't tend to equate soon with 2,000 years. Uh, I mean, imagine this. Imagine what my marriage would look like if every time Amanda asked me to wash the dishes... I said, I'll get on that soon, and then waited a year, much less 2,000. I mean, so we need to deal with this question. This is a real question, because our entire faith rests on this this issue. Because if Jesus is not coming back, then what hope do we have? You know, we're to be pitied. We're a bunch of silly people sitting around singing praises to a guy who's never coming back and not going to rescue us. It's pathetic, really. And as I was researching for this sermon, I mean, this very issue comes up. There are people out there, you know, mocking and ridiculing the Christian faith because, you know, 2,000 years have passed and nothing's happened. But before we dive back into our passage detail, having asked all these questions, I want to make one thing abundantly clear. Jesus is coming back. He is. And how do I know this? Because the perfectly true word of God that spoke everything into being, that gives you the very breath in your lungs, that opens your eyes to redemption, that is, in, that is Christ tells us so. That word says that he's coming back. And I'm just going to give you a few examples because you shouldn't take my word for it. So if you want to turn with me to Matthew 24... 
Because Jesus himself referred to his return numerous times, and including this one in Matthew 24, verse 31 to 33, where he says, when the Son of Man, and that's Jesus referring to himself, that's the title, the, referring himself as the promised one, the one who was coming to save Israel, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious th- throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Jesus himself says he's coming in glory and he's going to judge the nations. And this is a hope and a comfort to us because as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again And we believe that God will bring Jesus, with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Jesus is coming back. And that's a hope for us, both for us who live and those whose passing we mourn. Paul says again in in Titus 2, starting in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, while we wait for for the blessed hope, the appearing appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The return of Jesus is our hope. Waiting for Jesus is an essential part of the Christian life. And then, of course, I would be remiss if we didn't look at the book of Revelation written by John the disciple who recorded a vision he received from God regarding what is to come. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open and before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he wages, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Remember the beginning of John's gospel, it says, and many of us would know this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then what happens? The word becomes flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the word of God. This is talking about Jesus coming back to judge the nations, to wage war in power and glory. Keep reading at verse 14. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean, Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. 
He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. At that point, everyone is going to acknowledge him for who he is. But then in Revelation 20, the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of of the tree are for the healing of the nations. If you remember back, way back at the beginning, to the Garden of Edom, what were Adam and Eve not allowed to eat of once they had sinned? They were cast out of the garden so they could not eat of the tree of life. And here at the end with Jesus' return, we have this ultimate reconciliation. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb and, of the si- and will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will not be the need, the, they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. You can take them to the bank. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servant the things that must take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. And I don't know about you, but, but you know, when I read that, when you read this, 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 the triumph at the end of Revelation, you know, it gives, gives me chills. I mean, just Jesus reigning in power and glory, and we get to stand in his presence, and the curse is no more. And there are more examples of this littered throughout Scripture. I only picked a very small sampling. In fact, Jesus' return is directly or indirectly referenced in every single book of the New Testament, with the exceptions of only Philemon and 3 John, which those of you who have read them are very short books. So if you get nothing else from this sermon, I want you guys to remember this, that Jesus is coming back. He is. He's coming back. And don't listen to anyone who would suggest otherwise. Because they're only lying to justify their actions. They ignore the history of God working. They try to restrict God and put him in this box of our human understanding. And when Jesus returns and judgment comes, and you know, make no mistake, it's coming everything's going to be revealed. Every motivation, every action, every thought, and every word. So let's, let's be happy here. You know, you're all looking real du- du- dull and glum, right? This is a joyful thing. Jesus is coming back. This is the source of our hope. This is why we're even meeting today, because Jesus is coming back. He died, was buried, rose again, and he is coming back. The Christian life is one of expectation. We're looking forward to this fulfillment, which has not yet happened. It's been partially fulfilled. We have been, yes, we've been rescued from sin and death, but the fulfillment of that is not complete and will not be complete till Jesus comes again. So Jesus is coming back. And Peter here wants to offer a rebuttal to the lies of the false teachers that are saying, no, he's not. And he does this by considering 
not just their motivations and the flaws in their argument, but also by considering the character of God. So if you want to kind of look sub-points for this sermon, here, we're, we're looking at number one now here. So false teachers will deny Jesus coming back to justify their actions. So Jesus is coming back, but false teachers will deny it to justify their actions. Take a look at verse 2 and 3 of 2 Peter 3. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, or of most importance, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing or mocking following their own sinful desires. The predictions of the prophets and the commandments of Jesus through the apostles is the promise of his coming and how we should live as a result of that. The commandment to wait expectantly that we just looked at is littered throughout scripture and to deny it is to deny the word of God, is to deny the Bible, is to deny Jesus, is to call God a liar. It requires us to deny the authority of the Bible over our lives. And thus it allows us to live any way we want. Because if I am the authority over the Bible, then, well, there's no authority but me. And this is exactly why the lie is told. And Peter identifies this here. Because if the word of God is not trustworthy on this one point, why should I care what it has to say about any number of other inconvenient things? And the Bible has many inconvenient things to say. You know, so I can decide my sexual identity and express it without the restrictions of marriage. I can spend my money on what I want, how I want. I can use my time how I want. It doesn't matter if I lie to get myself ahead. I don't need to sacrifice for the sake of those around me, much less the gospel. I don't need to love. I can conform, be liked, satisfy my desires, do whatever makes me feel happy. Because there are no standards except the ones that I choose. See, at the heart of the denial of Christ's return is this denial of God's authority over our lives. And we keep coming back to this over a course of our journey through the book of 2 Peter, but it's the same lie that led Adam and Eve to plunge us all into sin. I get to decide. I want to be God. I know what is best. I get to decide right and wrong. And Peter describes them as scoffers with their scoffing, or another way of putting this is mockers with their mocking. They will come and ridicule the hope of Jesus' return. They will make fun and belittle the idea that Jesus is coming back. But the reason that they do this is to justify their actions. To justify their actions. I mean, haven't you experienced that? People ridiculing? underlying it all, Peter is saying, is, is a desire to justify ourselves. Which brings us to the second reason that false teachers deny Jesus' return. is because they ignore history. Starting at verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? It's been 2,000 years or more. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. God seems to have disappeared. 
She's not working in the world anymore. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And by, that me- by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Nothing has changed. Ever since Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the fathers of the Israelite people, the prophets died, nothing has changed. There's been no judgment, no indication of a second coming. Jesus' return was simply a lie. And you've got to realize, too, at this point in the church's history, like they didn't have the Bible in the same that way that we have the Bible now. So in a lot of sense, what they were doing was, was, was saying that the apostles, what the apostles were teaching was a lie. That Jesus did, either Jesus did not in fact say it, or Jesus lied to the apostles. I mean, Christians have been waiting, and this is a very similar thing to what we get in our day. Christians have been waiting 2,000 years. And many say, you know, maybe we should admit that Christ isn't coming anymore. I mean, I've seen videos and blogs where people argue against Christ's return using these very same arguments. You know, it's like word for word from 2 Peter. It's somewhat amusing, to be honest. But Peter here is saying, again, there's a reason for their denial. More than their underlying motivation is to justify themselves. False teachers deny because they aren't looking at the facts. In fact, they deliberately ignore the facts. Because as we saw, they need to justify their actions. They need to justify their lifestyles. And and so to do so, they, they need to discredit the word of God. And this is not an honest mistake. This is ill motive. In particular, they are ignoring the history of God's creation and judgment. The word of God created everything and then did what? Destroyed creation with a flood. Everyone knows the story of Noah, how God judged the world and destroyed it. And what Peter is saying is now the very same word that did it, the very same word that created and destroyed, that very same word holds together the universe, keeping it ready for judgment. And the same God who was doing all this promised that he is coming back. If God kept his promises before, if the character of God has been demonstrated such that he keeps his promises, if he's holding everything together, if he has the power to do that, don't you think he is able and more than able to come back when he wants? To keep his promise? But then comes the other objection. Well, it's been a long time. He did many of those things a long time ago. And so Peter responds, Jesus is coming back because God's time is not our time. Verse eight. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
Peter is writing at the end of his life so that when he dies, and he says this in the letter, that the believers who come after him will have hope in the return of Jesus, despite that taking longer than they might like. We've already seen that the weight of history tells us we should trust God, and we need to remember that God's time is not our time. James 4, 14, you don't have to turn there, it's very quick, describes our lives as momentary. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Our lifetimes are but a moment. Everyone know that song? You know, we are a moment, you are forever. We are just a moment. We are a blip in history. I don't know if you ever like looked at the vastness of space. Look at the vastness of space. And like the distances are unimaginable. You know, we think, you know, getting from from here all across the island is a long way, right? The distance even from Earth to the moon, much less out of our solar system or the galaxy, the vastness of time and space and how small we are in it. Our lifetimes are but a moment, but what is more here is the delay is not just because God is failing, that God has somehow forgotten, that God is, has somehow dropped the ball or is unable. It's because of his mercy. I mean, if Jesus came back today, you realize that more than 90% of this city is going to hell. More than 180,000 people, many of which you know and love, are going to hell. And the fact that Jesus hasn't returned yet is a mercy to everyone in the city who rejects him. And this should clearly give us compassion for the world around us and compel us to go out and tell people the good news of the gospel, but it should also make us marvel at the grace that God shows us, that he waits. What if God hadn't waited till the day before you committed your life to him? Every day that Christ does not return is another opportunity for someone to be transformed by the power of the gospel and to turn to look upon the cross and be saved. It is an opportunity for us to share that good news. See, God is coming. And the time has been set. Bible tells us, like, it's been set. God knows when it is. We don't know when it is, but God knows. It was ordained before creation even began. but God is being patient. Yet that day is coming. The day is still coming. And when it comes, the coming judgment is going to reveal everything. There's not going to be any hiding. Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. How does a thief come? Banging the drum at the front door? No, he sneaks in. You don't expect the thief, otherwise you'd have the police waiting for him. Jesus is coming back, and when he does, it's going to be unexpected, and it's going to be devastating. Everything on the earth is going to be destroyed. All the things that we value 
and chase after are going to disappear. Poof. That new car you bought? Poof. Your mortgage? Poof. The earth and all that was done on it will be laid bare before the judgment of God. I mean, this is a bit of a scary prospect. You can admit you're a bit scared. I'm a bit scared, right? If you're, not, if you're not the least bit afraid, at least a little bit afraid of peering before God on judgment day, then you know you don't know God. God is a scary dude. And yet, it is the same God who waits patiently so that more might come to repentance. His return is both a hope and it's a warning. It's our hope because every injustice, every broken relationship, every problem that we see around us or was done to us is going to be fixed. But it's a warning too that nothing on this world lasts. And if everything is going to be revealed, the question is how will we be found? So as we draw here towards a conclusion, again, if if you remember one thing, I really want it to be this. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Expect that. Live it. Wait for it. Long for it. At the right time, at the appointed time, the time which was ordained before the beginning of the world, In power and glory, he will descend from the heavens and judge the nations. No one's going to be able to stand against him. There's not going to be any rebellion or any successful rebellion. The earth is going to be consumed and everything in it. And on that day, every knee is going to bow in joy or in fear. Everyone will confess that Jesus is Lord. Some will confess him as Savior. Hold on to that truth. Cling to it. It's our hope. It's our hope. He's coming back. And to reject this is to reject the word of God, the history of God's work, is to declare that you are God. And this is a vital issue, so significant that Peter devotes the entire last third of what is effectively his last will and testament. The last things that Peter wants to say, the stuff that he wants to leave as his legacy, he devotes a third of this to the coming of Christ. But more importantly, this is a truth to rejoice in, stand on, hold on to, when everything else seems to be falling apart, when your life is failing, when your relationships are broken, when everything is taken from you, Jesus is coming back. When you are persecuted or disadvantaged because of your faith, or maybe just the implications of your faith, remember Jesus is coming back. He promised he would, and so he will. Maybe when you start to wonder if this is worth it, maybe I should just give up. It's too hard. Remember, Jesus is coming back. Remember how long the Israelites waited in Egypt. It must have seemed an awfully long time. Remember how long they looked forward waiting for the Messiah. They waited a long time and suffered a lot. Remember that God has judged the earth before and he is going to do so again. He's coming back.
And when you feel like it's taking too long, remember it's because of his love and mercy that he delays. It is. But he's still coming back. And when you're tempted to give in, make yourself God, reject the word of God and its authority of your life. Remember Jesus is coming back and everything is going to be revealed. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for the hope that you are coming back. Lord, we confess that so often we do not anticipate your coming. We do not look forward to your coming. We tend to forget, and we need to be reminded. I need to be reminded. So often I don't live my life like you're coming back. Lord, I pray that you would protect us from such shallow, immature Christianity. I pray that you would give us that hope that we would hold on to. That we would expect your return. We would expect it. We would live like we expect it. We would hope for it. We would pray for it. We would long for it. Oh, Jesus, come back soon. Father God, give us a heart that longs for your return. Pray all these things in your name, precious name of Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords.